0: I bet you've heard the parable of the wolf in sheep's clothing. The sharp-toothed predator who slips on a sheepskin, sneaks past the shepherd, and helps himself to a tasty lamb lunch. The tale reminds us that things aren't always as they seem. That bad guys can dress up as good guys to do their bad guy things. Well, there's a wolf in sheep's clothing story in cancer research. With a crafty predator, a clever disguise, and a visionary team of researchers that finally found a way to nab the wolf. I'm Ken Schulman, and this is Unraveled, a Dana-Farber Cancer Institute podcast. The human immune system is an amazing thing. An intricate choreography of signals and cells that defends us from so many threats, viruses, bacteria, and parasites for starters. And the thinking for over a hundred years had been, if
1: you could just get the immune system to attack the cancer, that would be wonderful. And so
0: lots of ways were tried, but none of those had worked. Immunologist Gordon Freeman came to Dana Farber in the early 1980s. Born in Fort Worth, Texas, he traveled north to do undergraduate and graduate work at Harvard. Among other things, he studied T-cells, an agile and aggressive strike force, the frontline defenders in our immune system. They're the major orchestrator
1: of the immune fight. And over the last 30 years, we've studied the signals that expand the numbers of T-cells
0: and discovered there are also signals that Reduce the number of T-cells. Signals that expand the number of T-cells, that's easy to understand. Say you've got an infection. Your immune system calls up the troops for a rapid response. There's strength in numbers. But then there are signals that reduce the number of T-cells. What's that about? Well, there is a point in downsizing the strike force, and it's a good one. Sure, we want to ramp up our T-cells when we're under attack, But we also want those T-cells to stand down once the fight's over. Otherwise, they could run wild and start attacking healthy tissue and cells. They could stage a coup. Fortunately, our immune system also has several layers of stand-down signals, molecular checkpoints, that tell our T-cells to disarm. In most cases, the system works, but not in all cases. In his lab, Freeman found one reason why. And here's where the wolf story comes in. Sometimes those stand-down signals, the checkpoints that tell T-cells they can drop their weapons, get crossed, stolen actually, stolen by cancer cells. Freeman discovered that certain cancer cells steal that stand-down signal and use it to slip past T-cells so they can spread disease. Cancer cells had learned how to slip on sheepskin and fool our defenses, just like the wolf learned to fool the shepherd. What if, Freeman started asking, what if we could get those T cells to see the cancer cells as wolves again?
2: No one wants to deal with cancer. No one wants to hear that word, to be directed towards their life. In
0: 2011, Barry Nelson was diagnosed with stage 3 lung cancer. Nelson has a family history of cancer. The disease took his mother, aunts, and grandmother. When he was diagnosed, he prayed to God
2: that he wouldn't die in vain. I felt like, you know, God heard my prayer. Because I wanted, even if I was going to die, I just wanted what I was going through to help somebody else. So I felt like, look at this, it's going to help somebody else, you know. Nelson did
0: multiple rounds of chemotherapy and radiation with devastating side effects. Nothing worked. His doctors in Boston told him to put his affairs in order.
2: You know, the senior oncologist comes into the room. He said, this is a waste of time. You're going to die. You need to accept that you're going to die.
0: But Barry Nelson didn't want to accept it. He talked to his primary care physician, who made an appointment
2: for him at Dana-Farber
0: with Dr. Christopher Latham.
2: He listened to everything I had to say, and it was a wonderful feeling because after I explained to him what happened, he said, first of all, that'll never happen to you here. Secondly, we have plenty of tools in the toolbox, and we're going to fight for you just as hard as you fight for you. And that's what I wanted to hear.
0: And it turned out that Dr. Lathan had to try almost every tool in that toolbox, including another drug that, when partnered with chemo, had extended the lives of some lung cancer patients. But that combination
2: just made Nelson feel worse. Terrible, terrible side effects for me. I lost my equilibrium for like six months. I had no balance. I couldn't hardly walk or stand up. Broke out with all kinds of blisters and all kinds of, It was nasty. It was ugly. It took a while
0: for Nelson to get his strength back. When he did, Dr. Lathan told him there was another tool, if he was interested. It was a new drug, an immunotherapy, that was just starting clinical trials at Dana-Farber. The drug was called nivolumab. If you know a thing or two about science, you'll know that major discoveries don't really happen overnight. Every breakthrough is the result of hundreds of small steps taken over months and years and decades. And even for the best of scientists, most of those steps are missteps. In cancer research, very few lab discoveries make it as far as clinical trials. Even fewer go the distance and become drugs. A researcher has to
3: kiss a lot of frogs to find a prince. You've got to be sufficiently motivated to take all those hits and, and to still come back you know, year after year, day after day, to do the research. That's Barrett Rollins,
0: Chief Scientific Officer Emeritus.
3: You yeah, we get seduced a lot of times into thinking that um, the only thing that matters are positive results that move you down a pathway. But once you become a scientist and once you start working on things, negative results, something that doesn't work, is just as valuable as something positive because it closes off one of those other pathways that you'd otherwise waste time going down.
0: Rollins and Freeman both started as researchers at Dana-Farber in the early 80s. It was a different scientific world. Sequencing the human genome was still decades away. Immunotherapy, the idea that the body's own immune system could be transformed into a cancer-fighting force, loomed like a sunset, beautiful, beguiling, and out of reach. In the meantime, doctors at Dana-Farber and elsewhere used chemical agents to poison tumors in patients, or radiation treatments to shrink them. Let's be clear, these weren't the dark ages. Every year saw improved cancer therapies with fewer and lighter side effects and better outcomes. But those improvements were mostly incremental. Then came Gleevec.
3: It's impossible to overstate the importance of the Gleevec discovery. Gleevec, a revolutionary therapy for chronic myeloid
0: leukemia, or CML. CML is an aggressive blood cancer whose average survival rate used to be about five years. Gleevec changed that. More importantly, Gleevec changed the way we look at cancer. In one trial in 1998, 98% of CML patients who received Gleevec were still in remission five years later. Doctors hesitate to use the word cured in cancer, but moving from a death sentence to five years of living cancer-free sure looked like a cure. It also looked like a miracle. But it wasn't just these results that made Gleevec a game changer. It was the method. And this was no overnight miracle. It started in the 1950s when scientists began to unravel the biological mechanisms that generate cancer.
3: I think everybody understands that the problem in cancer is that cells grow when they're not supposed to. I mean, it doesn't happen just because there's food and water around. It turns out that it's a process that's controlled by genes. In every cancer, that we have looked at. We know that the reason that cancer has happened is because there's been some alteration, some damage, mutation to the genes that regulate cell growth. All of our cells have these genes. They're basically a
0: molecular switch that tells our cells to be fruitful and multiply. It's how we grow. Think of those switches as hitting the gas pedal. In 1960, Researchers in Philadelphia discovered that several CML patients had an abnormally short 20-second chromosome. A decade later, another group saw that this chromosome featured another abnormality, a hybrid gene. Two genes that shouldn't be touching were fused together. It was this hybrid gene, this abnormality, that sent out signals for cancer cells to grow and grow and grow. It was a genetic switch jammed in the on position. So now think of your car being stuck in drive with the gas pedal glued to the floor. Doctors treated CML the way they treated most cancers, with chemo. But in the 1990s, a few researchers started to think they could do better. They thought they could develop a therapy that would shut down that hybrid gene to turn the growth switch back to off. One of these researchers was Dana-Farber's Tom Roberts, Another was Brian Drucker, an Oregon-based scientist who trained at Dana-Farber. It was a shift in strategy. Instead of blindly attacking the cancer cells, these scientists wanted to target the very reason that these cells were cancerous. Inhibiting that protein might keep these cells from behaving like cancer cells. That would take the pedal off the metal and, hopefully, spare healthy cells and tissues.
3: It completely changed the way you look at that leukemia. You go from something that was you know, eventually clearly fatal and, and pretty miserable death to you know, patients have been on this drug for you know, over 10 years and doing extremely well. And now we know that if they fail that, we have another drug behind it. But for the science of cancer therapeutics, it's a game changer because it proved the concept. It was a proof of concept experiment that you could make a drug targeted against a mutation that would have major clinical impact
0: for researchers at Dana-Farber Gleevec was proof of another perhaps even more significant concept that there were other game-changing therapies out there new strategies to fight cancer waiting to be discovered
3: the confidence it gave researchers especially in our setting is that basic science can solve problems basic science can tell you which way to go in order to make new therapies and so we had this long history of doubling down year after year saying that cancer cells are so different from normal cells that our immune system ought to be able to detect them and reject them and there were a lot of people who had faith that the immune system would be able to do this but we had to figure out why and so gordon freeman was one of these people until two days ago that sound had never been heard on this earth
0: When I was in high school, Sputnik had just been launched. That's Gordon Freeman again. He was in school in Fort Worth, Texas in 1957 when the Soviet Union launched the world's first man-made satellite into space, Sputnik. That's Russian for Little Voyager. So there was a tremendous
1: American concern with the Russians were ahead of us. So Congress funded scientific research all the way down to the elementary and high school level
0: because we needed to get better at science. Thanks to the space race, Freeman got hooked on science early, first in his high school lab, and then over the summer at a special program at the University of Texas. That was where he learned he could play in the big leagues. He left the Lone Star State for New England and Harvard, where he got his bachelor's and doctorate degrees. Thanks to his first postdoc at Dana-Farber, Freeman chose to focus on immunology and cancer. Because I thought that it was a field really ripe
1: for discovery and that it could be applied to so many diseases that if you could unleash it on cancer, you
0: could have a really novel fight. When he started, Freeman didn't quite know how the body's immune system could be trained to seek and destroy tumors. He just knew there was a need because standard treatments like chemotherapy weren't always getting the job done. You hit the cancer, the
1: chemo wipes out 99.99%, but you got one cell left, which then starts to grow again, and the chemo doesn't work on that cell. So what's different about the immune system is it can learn and change and evolve and adapt as the cancer does. Once you stop the tumor from evading the immune response.
0: And immunotherapy, the use of the body's own defenses to fight cancer, offered another advantage over traditional cancer care. Fewer side effects, like hair loss, nausea, fatigue, decreased ability to fight infection. There are more, but you get the picture, and it usually isn't a pretty one. Because we're not trying to directly kill the
1: tumor cells, we're trying to activate the immune system to have the immune system kill the tumor cells. Chemotherapy is basically trying to
0: poison cells. Freeman was looking for a better way to make our T-cells smarter, stronger, more effective against tumors. But why do T-cells need our help? Why can't they beat cancer on their own? Well, it turns out they usually can. At the beginning of any disease,
1: you just have a few T-cells, maybe just a hundred that could attack that specific disease. So the critical thing when you recognize a disease is those small number of T cells start dividing really fast and a week later they've gone from a hundred T cells to millions of T cells. Now millions of T cells are an effective fighting force. Effective enough to defeat most cancers especially at the onset. Early on in the beginning of cancer you get one or two or ten cancer cells. And it turns out the immune system eliminates most of those at the one or two or ten cell stage. It's only occasionally that those ten cells become a hundred cells by the time you have cancer, which has become a medical problem. The immune response has been trying to fight that cancer for ten or twenty years.
0: And after those ten or twenty years the T-cells sometimes give up. In the early 1990s, a research lab in Kyoto, Japan, identified a protein on the surface of T-cells, a protein that appeared when the T-cells died. They named that protein PD-1, PD for programmed death. Then the team started manipulating that surface protein, PD-1, turning it on and off in mice. And they noticed when they turned it off, the mice developed autoimmune disorders. It turned out they'd chosen a bad name for their protein. PD-1 wasn't a T-cell kill switch. It was a safety switch. And when the Kyoto team disabled it, the T-cells kept going and going, attacking everything in sight. In 1999, Gordon Freeman decided to dig a little deeper. So
1: first we discovered the B7 molecules, the ones that expand the number of T-cells
0: the battle cry rallying the troops. Let's take a quick time out for a crash course in the human immune system. When a threat like a virus or an infection hits our bodies, tiny messengers called antigen-presenting cells deliver samples of that threat to our T-cells. Think of Paul Revere galloping through the countryside crying, the virus is coming, the virus is coming. These antigen-presenting cells, the messengers, show up with two signals. The first signal tells the T cell who the intruder is. The second signal, the B7 molecules Freeman just mentioned, tell the T cells to gear up for an attack. Now, when those danger signalers, the B7 molecules, meet up with T cells, they bind with receptors on the surface of the T cells. This molecular handshake switches the T-cell into attack mode and tells it what arms it will need to fight the enemy. The handshake also tells the T-cell to multiply, fast. But there's even more. Remember that T-cells need to be disarmed once they've done their job, or they'll stay in attack mode. So when the B7 molecule and its receptor on T-cells shake hands, The B7 molecule also tells the T-cell to express PD-1 on its surface. PD-1, the safety switch. It's like installing a set of disc brakes on a Ferrari. Even the fastest car needs to stop, especially the fastest car. Gordon Freeman knew all about this molecular handshake, and he asked a basic science question. Were there other molecules? similar to B7 molecules, that might shake hands and cause T-cells to stand down, to slam on the brakes. It was a good time to ask that question. Scientists around the world had nearly completed mapping the human genome. And then we looked for what other new
1: molecules as the human genome began to be sequenced and all these 20,000 different genes in your body were identified. We asked what looked like the B7 molecules. And we discovered little snippets of information that looked like a B7 molecule, and we
0: worked it up and found the full molecule. Again, basic science. You ask a question. That question leads to another question, and, if you're lucky, to another. So we isolate that structure
1: and make a test tube amount of it And then we ask, what will it interact to? What will it bind to?
0: What does it glue to? Freeman and his team called their new molecule 292. It looked like a B7 molecule. Now they wanted to know whether it would act like a B7 molecule, whether it would bind, shake hands, with the same things that B7 molecules bind to, like receptors on T cells. Perhaps the new molecule would bind with the PD-1 receptor. Perhaps that handshake would tell T-cells to stand down. While questions like these still drive science, technology often provides the wheels. For this experiment, Freeman and his team did something called flow cytometry. It's a high-tech cellular scanner. Researchers suspend cells in a single drop of water, mix them with dye, and pass them beneath a laser beam at 500 cells per second. The machinery is complex, but the concept's simple. You know how you go to the rock shop and shine UV light
1: on a rock and it shines back green or red? Same idea. That laser beam hits the cell for a second, and that cell
0: shines back green. And we say, okay, it's there, it's bound. The question was whether molecule 292 would bind with PD-1, the safety switch. So they prepared two batches of Molecule 292 mixed with T-cells. In the first batch, the T-cells expressed PD-1. In the second, they didn't. And we find it doesn't bind to the cell without PD-1, but it bound to the cell with PD-1. Freeman's team had discovered a pathway, a few key steps in the complex ballet that is the human immune system. In this pathway, Molecule 292 binds with PD-1 it was this bond this handshake that told the t cells to disarm once their job was done pd1 is a safety switch but it can't shut down a t cell on its own it needs to bind to shake hands in order to hit the brakes freeman's team gave molecule 292 a new name pdl1 the brakes on the ferrari a military checkpoint the pd1 pdl1 checkpoint Protects us from a host of autoimmune diseases. And in most cases, the checkpoint system works. But as Freeman studied his new molecule, he found a bug in the system. We found that the
1: PDL1 molecule was expressed on cancer cells, and that we'd already discovered that it turned off the immune response. So, cancer cells. Also had PDL1. So, seeing this molecule on cancer cells said that this might be a way that cancer cells would turn off the immune response. PDL1 binds to PD1, and it causes PD1 to signal into
0: the T cell and turn off. Cancer cells stealing signals. Cancer cells flying PDL1 flags so our T cells can't see them for what they are the wolf in sheep's clothing. In 2000, after about one year of research, Freeman and his colleagues published their findings in the Journal of Experimental Medicine. Freeman and his lab mates had co-authored scores of papers, but this one felt different. We did know
1: it was major because it was an immune inhibitory molecule that was on cancer cells. So we knew
0: this had you know, more potential than most. Potential. That's an understatement. Freeman had discovered a molecule on cancer cells that disarmed T-cells our frontline defenders. He discovered a mechanism that cancer used to confuse the body's cancer fighters. But no matter how promising, it was still just a loud discovery. Scientists have a lot of ideas that
1: look good in the test tube or look good as ideas. And what you've got to do is see it works and it's safe. Well, I I think the real confirmation is it works in people.
0: If cancer science is indeed a race, it's definitely a relay race. Scientists like Gordon Freeman run the first leg, then hand the baton to a translational specialist who asks if that lab discovery might be used with cancer patients. The baton then goes to drug companies, who develop a therapy or drug. In the final lap, clinicians test that drug on patients. If no one drops the baton, if everything goes right, the FDA approves the drug at the finish line. The relay race that Freeman started produced a drug called nivolumab. It's a checkpoint inhibitor an antibody produced in the lab that keeps T-cells from shutting down. How? Nivolumab binds with the PD-1 receptor on T-cells. With the safety switch, nivolumab, the antibody, literally forms a blockade around the PD-1 receptor. Try as it may, the pdl one protein on cancer cells can't bind with the PD-1 receptor. It can't signal the T-cell to shut down. From behind the blockade, the T-cell sees cancer as the threat it is and attacks it. Basically, this drug allows the T-cells to do their jobs. It removes any distractions, any bad messaging. Nivolumab was now in clinical trials, the anchor leg in the relay, which brings us back to Barry Nelson the stage 3 lung cancer patient who'd been told that his time was up. Now his doctors at Dana-Farber asked if he wanted to participate in a clinical trial for nivolumab. They told him the drug had shown promise in patients with melanoma and Hodgkin's lymphoma, but they'd never tested it on lung cancer. To some patients it might have sounded like a Hail Mary. To Nelson, it sounded like another chance. And it felt
2: like one, too, right off. So when I got the infusion, I knew something was working. I didn't, I didn't feel like I normally felt when I was getting the standard chemotherapy. So I went home. I didn't have to go to bed immediately. I don't know. I just felt something different. It didn't feel like I normally felt. I didn't feel sick. I didn't feel like I didn't, my energy was returning. So the long and the short of it is that after three months, I mean, after three treatments, we did a scan. My tumors had shrunk 25%. 25 percent. And so that was amazing. They hadn't seen anything like that before.
0: Nelson continued with the nivolumab trial, and his health continued to improve. Soon, he was well enough to ride his bicycle to Dana-Farber for his treatments.
2: And while I was waiting, you know, people in the waiting room, they, they would be whispering, I don't know what they were talking about. So I was in and one of my research nurses, said, did you ride your bike today? And I said, yeah. And she says, oh, you know, everybody's talking about you riding a bicycle.
0: The nurse asked Nelson another question. Would he like to meet the scientist who developed the treatment that had saved his life? A few months later, Gordon Freeman came to one of Nelson's treatments. Freeman looked at his scans. He asked Nelson how he was feeling whether there were any side effects
2: for me it was almost like meeting god because this is that was he was the one he and his team were the ones that you know were doing something to change my life and other people's life you know it was a
1: real thrill to meet Barry Nelson Barry had really had advanced lung cancer he was told by his physician to make his peace with the world, and Barry is a fighter and a researcher, and he found a doctor at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute who really said, we have clinical
0: trials. We have new players in the game. In 2017, two years after it received breakthrough status from the FDA, nivolumab was approved for treatment for a host of other cancers, including bladder kidney, and melanoma. For a story that began at Dana-Farber with Gordon Freeman poking around with T-cells, it sounds like a very happy ending. But for Freeman, it's only the beginning. The immunotherapies
1: have really opened the door. Um, Again, they've been improved for 21 different types of cancer, but an average response rate is 20 to 30 percent which means that it's not working for 70% of the people who who take it. Also, it works in a lot of cancer types, but not every cancer type. And so
0: we want to get immunotherapy to work in those cancers. More than anyone, Freeman understands that checkpoint inhibitors like the one he helped pioneer aren't the cure for cancer. They're part of the cure, but they're an important part a new way to wage the war, teaching our frontline defenders not to fall for one of cancer's dirtiest tricks. I think
1: checkpoints are the foundation because you've got to stop the tumor from evading the immune response. I'm not sure every scientist would agree with me, and I'm sure there will be a number of new therapies which use completely something else, but many, many of the new combinations are going to
0: be the pd one PD-1 drugs plus something else. Glevec nivolumab, overnight sensations that were anything but overnight. Dana-Farber Chief Scientific Officer Barrett Rollins wants
3: us to keep that in mind. You know if there's anything negative at all to say about these two stories, it's that it will tend to give certain people the idea that you know, we should be seeing these kinds of successes year after year after year, and you just can't. There has to be a certain amount of, a certain sort of, um, you know, critical mass of research being done for the sake of research. If we don't support basic undirected research without thinking that, oh yes, this project is going to lead to the next big blockbuster drug, we're not going to get to the next big blockbuster drug.
0: That said, Rollins believes the culture at Dana-Farber ups the odds of hitting the next jackpot in cancer therapy. Next time, the Nobel Prize comes calling. First of all, the real
3: prize was participating in the discovery and seeing the result and understanding something that had never been understood before, and just marveling at the beauty of the mechanism that nature had arrived upon.
0: I'm Ken Schulman, and this is Unraveled, a Dana-Farber Cancer Institute podcast.
3: What is it about Dana-Farber that makes it
1: such a powerful adversary against cancer? It's hundreds of Dana-Farber researchers and clinicians making new discoveries inspired by the work of previous Dana-Farber discoverers. At Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, nothing is as effective against cancer as a relentless succession of breakthroughs. Go to danafarber.org stories and see how what we do here changes lives everywhere.